Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Bree. And today we have joining us Dr. Amy Burge. She's going to share with us all of her expertise and knowledge. Dr. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So you have you have done a lot of study into a specific subset of, of romance genre, and that is sheiks. So can you just give us, um, well, just all of what, you, what you've studied and just tell us all about it, please. We're fascinated. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I have done a lot of research into kind of romance as a genre as a whole and kind of of interest to, to you, I suppose, is a lot of that work has been with category romances, kind of series romances uh, published by Mills and Boone in the UK, but obviously Harlequin in, uh, in North America. Uh, and yeah, a lot of that work initially was around shakes or sheiks. Um, and I've kind of expanded on some of that work more recently, kind of thinking about masculinity and nationality. Um, and all of that work has been around Mills and Boone's modern romance series, um, what Harlequin calls Harlequin Presents, uh, the kind of modern, sexy kind of series. They call it the home of the alpha male, as I'm sure you know, um, kind of started in August 2000. So I've really been interested in like the first 20 years of, of that series and kind of what's been going on uh, with masculinity, with kind of cultural national identity in in that series. Okay, so can I ask, can you take us back, like, where did the inspiration for studying this come from for you? That's a good question. Probably, well, the inspiration for romance uh, is an interest as a reader. I've always read romance, been interested in it from kind of a young adult. Um, I kind of grew up through the kind of realist world of YA fiction. So I was a little late coming to things like Twilight. Um, but I, I think just the the interest as a reader combined with this module that I took as an undergraduate student. Um, so it was a, a medieval romance module. Um, so part of, of what I'm interested in is, is romance as a kind of trans-historical, long historical genre. Um, so I'm interested in medieval romance as well, which of course looks quite different to what we might call romance today. It's maybe closer to what we might think of as adventure fiction. Uh, and there was a, a module run by who eventually became my PhD supervisor, Dr. Nicola MacDonald at the University of York in the UK. Uh, and this module that she created was thinking about medieval romances together with kind of modern contemporary examples of text. So romance, but also Westerns. So we watched a lot of John Wayne movies. Um, uh, so yeah, I think it was really that module that started to make me realize that I could think about romance kind of as this cross historical genre and kind of make those connections from a genre perspective rather than a kind of literary historical perspective where it might be more in a particular period. Um, so yeah, it came from there. And then I, I moved into my master's and my PhD research. Um, my master's research was on historical romance fiction. So a series also published by Mills and Boone uh, called the Medieval Lords and Ladies series. It was a collection of a dozen kind of already published medieval historical romance novels that got repackaged uh, as kind of six double novel books. Um, so I did some some work on that uh, and then moved into into shake romance for my PhD. That's really where the, the shake interest came in was at that point. Like, where do you start? Okay, so you start, you're taking this course and you, you said like, through the course of this, that's when the shakes really started becoming of interest to you. Was there like a particular novel that you all read or was there something in a movie? Like, where does the light bulb go off for you? Like, huh, I'm really interested in focusing on this. That's a good question. I think it was a kind of wider interest I had in cultural identity, in diversity, uh, in kind of representations of cultures and faith and identity and gender as well, um, kind of in romance. And it might be that that interest for me initially came from those medieval romances. Um, so the, the medieval romances I'm really talking about are kind of Middle English verse romances. So they're verse rather than prose. They're in Middle English, which was the language in England um, kind of between, I don't know, like 11, 1200 and 1500. So I'm, I'm talking kind of 14th, 15th century here. Um, and of the... I don't know, 100, 120 odd kind of surviving texts that we have. Uh, there's about 42 that feature 
the word that they would use at the time was Saracen, which is a kind of problematic word that generally kind of broadly indicated someone of a Muslim faith, although, of course, it wasn't a realistic representation. These are very Christocentric texts, so they're texts written by Christians about kind of propaganda of Christianity. So they're they're kind of racist, problematic texts. Um, And from a, a research perspective, it's interesting to think about the history of racism in Europe, in England here, um, and to kind of think about, you know, what are these texts doing with these representations? What does it mean that they've got similarities or differences? Um, so I was interested in how these texts were representing Muslims or their kind of perception of, of who a Muslim was. Uh, and then I, I think through the, um, I, I kind of noticed through the, the Mills and Boone stuff, just the, the all the titles, you know, the the Sheikh's virgin stable girl. And I was noticing the word Sheikh coming up a lot in the titles, which is actually something I really noticed with my research. And and that connection of this kind of imaginary Middle East, which I was also seeing in the medieval texts. Um, And I just, you know, the medieval texts are historical. They're examples of a really particular... uh, to to our eyes, kind of racist and problematic history that we've kind of moved beyond in some ways. But I guess I was wondering, with these Sheikh romances that to me seem to be doing similar things in terms of the construction of identity, particularly Middle Eastern adjacent to Muslim identity, you know, a lot of these Sheikhs aren't actually practicing Muslims. Um, and, and I was interested in, in you know, have we progressed? What does it mean that the that I think these texts are doing quite similar things and, and how similar are they? So that was really the question of my PhD research. And the book that eventually came out of that was, you know, what are the similarities and differences between these medieval texts and these contemporary texts? And, and what does it tell us by looking more closely at those? Okay, tell us about your research. Like, what do you have that you can you can share with us? Because we've been just all week like, okay, we cannot wait to hear what Dr. Amy has to share. Because I love the desert romances. I I lived mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia for for a while, and but you don't. I I, I never read. I was I wasn't reading romance when the shakes were like on the title. Now it's mm-hmm. like when you read a presents, it's just like you'll see desert in there, and it's never like a shake, but it's like a prince or something like that. So I'm just we're we're so fascinated. So what what do you have that you can share with us? Yeah, I mean I can. I can talk through some of the the findings. I mean, I can tell you a bit more about kind of the research I did into the the kind of contemporary stuff rather than the the medieval stuff. So the um, as I said, I focused on uh, my kind of corpus of texts with those published in the Modern Romance series. So it was basically between August two thousand up to December two thousand and nine was the initial kind of shake uh, kind of number, and there were. There are about 57, I counted, kind of original, so not republished, Sheikh romances published in the modern romance series in that time. Um, And while that was a small proportion of all of the modern romance texts published in that 10-year period, actually in terms of the proportion of Sheikh romances published by Mills and Boone since 1909, since they started, it was actually about 36% of... um, all of their their kind of shape publications since the year 2000. And from the year 2000 onwards, there was just a massive growth in shape romances compared to kind of previous decades. Uh, so they, they've been kind of consistent, your kind of desert or shake romance. And I, there's obviously a difference there, right? I define those a little bit differently. We can talk about that if you like. Um, but you kind of have like seven or so up to 1929. Uh, The 30s had about five, the 1950s had about seven. Um, And then there's a bit of a dip. But from 2000 to 2009, there's like 157 published. So it's more than the sum of all of the previous years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And other scholars have kind of connected this to 9-11. You know, there's, there's more kind of public political kind of discourse and awareness around around the Middle East partly also goes hand in hand with a kind of rise in Islamophobia and and that's the kind of political social context within which a lot of Sheikh romance uh, studies have have kind of been done um but yeah really there's there was such a an explosion in popularity of it that it just felt like you know the a really interesting phenomenon to look at and within the modern romance series because that was the most popular kind of flagship flagship series at the time for Mills and Boone it just felt like the the right kind of source base to to look at those texts that's fascinating that so i would have assumed at least in north america that you know um post 911 there would have been like a dip in sales 
um, for for that kind of, of romance. But, you know, it, it goes to show us romance junkies. We love our forbidden. Yeah. So, okay, before, how would you dis- define the shakes versus what we see now in modern when it's like, you know, their desert one night scandal or something like that? What do you, how, what are the differences? Yeah. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm less familiar with kind of the 2010s, if you like, with kind of where desert romance or shake romance has gone. Um, I know that the titles is a big difference. You mentioned that already, Brie, with, you know, the titles I was looking at were almost uniformly, they'd have the word desert or sultan or shake in it. And they would also usually have something that indicated the heroine in the title too. And they would often be things like possessed, stolen, bartered, sold, virgin, like things like that. Um, And that was kind of from the mid 90s until basically the the end of the 2010s, that kind of, or to 2009, that really seemed to be the norm. And and I know having spoken to a few authors and um, editors, there was a there was a frustration, I think, with some of that title titling by the end of, of the kind of the 2000s. Um, and that might be something that's come up on this podcast before is kind of the the formulaicness of those titles um, wasn't necessarily something that authors wanted. So I think it's good that we've moved away from that. Um, with the kind of the, I guess, the the meta text, the kind of the, the covers and the titles and things, the imagery on the covers was also quite consistent. Um, there'd usually be a kind of a couple in a clinch, although that appeared kind of later when you're looking at the whole of the 20th century. Um, But yeah, there'd be, you know, lamps or rugs or carpets. Um, A few of them had that kind of orientalist symbolism of kind of pale skin against darker skin and they would kind of eroticize that with like a white hand uh, on darker skin or often his dark hand on her pale skin uh, because it's usually coded that in that kind of gendered way Um, so borrowing I think some of those orientalist tropes um, and which doesn't necessarily correlate to kind of what happens in the text like the skin color difference is sometimes hinted at in the text but I think it was more often signaled on the cover which I, I think says something perhaps about the perceived appeal of these romances like what exactly is the flavor of forbidden as you put it Aaron I mean it really does sound like okay I'm because again I missed this wave so was it like this culture like you you've you and Aaron both bought up the forbidden like even though there's all these things happening in the world and like at the time like like I remember here in the states I mean I was in high school at the time but I just remember how awful like we were treating middle easterners at that time but at the same time like it just sounds like and when it came to you know modern you know what modern was doing it was still kind of like this i don't know this fantasy which <laughs> like i i just i really wonder i mean obviously it was perceived like it was received with like open arms otherwise they wouldn't have sold so many books but i just wonder like how do you put that out there at a time like that you know, and just like, I guess, do it and hope that it is received well. I don't know. It just goes to show like, you know, I think when like friends of ours that read dark romance, they'll always say like, I would never want this to happen in real life, but I can read it in fiction. And it almost feels kind of like that. Like at the time, there was this awfulness going on and, it were, you know, people felt however they felt about it. But like, it was like this forbiddenness, but like I want to read about this because it's fiction almost. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, I think the the fantasy aspect of it is definitely something that was a shift from kind of the earlier 20th century into the the kind of 90s and the 2000s. Um so kind of before kind of the earlier romances, so the the 20s, 30s, 40s, they tended to be set in real places, generally in North Africa, which I think maps onto kind of British colonial interests in the region at the time. Um, So you have a lot set in Egypt or in Algeria, Morocco, um, and often those texts, they would be marketed as what I would call a desert romance, but often they wouldn't necessarily involve anyone who was kind of identifiably Middle Eastern kind of nationally or culturally. So it would be two British people or two Europeans or kind of two you know Canadians or whatever um so it it was 
the exoticism came from the place rather than from any character within that place. Yeah. And then you start to get later, which I think is probably playing on the the text that is often seen as the real influence for all of this is E.M. Holds the Shake from 1919. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that text, but the, the big reveal, apologies for spoilers, is that he's not really a shake at all. He's European, essentially, kind of cosplaying as this this Middle Eastern shake. Oh um, no! Oh no! Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting, influential text, but also problematic in many, many ways. Um, so yeah, the what I call the kind of the pseudo shake. So the character in the book who seems like a, a North African or a Middle Eastern shake, but isn't really, is really European. Um, you see him kind of emerging like about that time as well. Um, and he was pretty much the norm until the 1970s. So in terms of Mills and Boone publications, we didn't have a kind of a shake hero with any kind of Middle Eastern or North African kind of ethnic heritage until like the 70s. So maybe Violet Winsmith's Tawny Sands from 1970 Um has a, a kind of a heritage through his grandmother to this kind of North African oasis place. Um, so the pseudo sheikh basically disappears by the 1990s. Um, but I think that the sheikh as we have him now is very hybridized. So he is usually educated at like Oxford or Harvard. Um, he speaks perfect English. He travels widely. He obviously wears particular kinds of imagined kind of traditional dress when he is in his fictional kind of country but he will also wear suits and he'll maybe drink alcohol or he'll be kind of very comfortable in a western setting usually as well as within his middle eastern setting and i i think that's an important legacy of this like pseudo shake character um, and perhaps makes that characterization more palatable um, you know there's kind of the the bad shake and I'm doing air quotes there and then there's the good shake you know that that's kind of hybrid and wants to progress his country and is interested in women's rights um, and I think that is perhaps a, a fantasy that has a lot to say about kind of North American global north attitudes towards the Middle East at the time it's you know the, these are the good guys um, and you know that's the kind of the kinds of guys that we could have fantasies about and yeah, that that geography shift that I mentioned. So basically, from essentially up to about the 1980s, most of these shake romances were set in real places. But basically, almost every single one since the mid 90s is in this fantasy created nation, usually some kind of fictional emirate. Um, and I I think that's to sidestep the politics of it. You know, a, a romance novel set in Syria or Iraq or Iran is going to be marketed and is going to be different to a reader because that's a real place that has real connotations. Uh, but they're also, I think, really explicitly modelled on places like the UAE. They're usually in the kind of the Arabian Peninsula and and there's lots of skyscrapers and it's generally kind of little a little shakedom that these guys have and. Almost like places that them. feel like, you know, we can imagine ourselves there. You can imagine it like almost if you like like a London or a New York City. I've no I've noticed that too. Precisely. It's that touristy Middle East, that kind of, you know, Dubai, um, kind of Doha, like these these city states almost, um, like the United Arab Emirates, that that in themselves, even in real life, are themselves kind of like a fantasy, a fantasy of wealth, a fantasy of you know, repackaged traditions. They they do like fake camel rides and fake trips that actually aren't part of traditional culture in Dubai, but they do those as a representation of this kind of fictionalized culture. So yeah, it's it's there's been a real shift towards particular types of fantasy that I think are are seen as more palatable to readers. It's interesting you you mentioned the um the ones in the earlier 20th century um taking place in in these these locations and I I occasionally get these these wonderful postcards from the great Pippa Roscoe and their their covers of uh, old harlequins and one I have here is Barbary Moon and like you were saying mm. it's a it's a blonde woman and a white man in a suit and tie and they're just surrounded by you know what you would assume is you know Arabian culture you know people with the headdresses and, and everything and, and even camels in the background and stuff so that's um, really interesting the you know it makes sense with um, looking back on history that it would be pretty taboo back then to have um, you know an interracial romance and to put it on the cover especially yeah and it's interesting I think still and and this is maybe I think this has shifted in the last 10 years or so but at the time in the 2000s the shake romance was pretty much 
the only interracial romance that was consistently represented by Milton Boone. You had um, kind of coming out of the North American market more uh, black romance, but both characters in black romance are usually African-American. It's it's not that kind of interracial, cross-racial relationship. The shake romance is really the only place where that was imagined at the time. And again, that's what I wanted to ask next. Like, what, what, I mean, you mentioned the shake from 1919, but like, I wanted to know, like, why, why was it that culture specifically? Because, yeah, I'm like, I don't, besides, like, I don't remember seeing really anything else. Like, those are it when I think about, like, interracial romances, like, on covers and the stories for a long time. So was it because of that book? Or you know, there's just so many places in the world. It's like, why that specifically? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something I've thought about kind of with the extension of this research, which was thinking about kind of where the heroes of all the modern romance books come from. You know, why is the Middle Eastern Sheikh sexy, but the Japanese businessman isn't, right? right. Why are there yes. no heroes from Uganda or Nigeria or Ghana? And that, you know, there's there's certain countries and cultures and nationalities are allowed to be sexy in Mills and Boone novels and others aren't. So yeah, I, I do think the Sheikh has a big role to play in that and obviously the reason why the shake itself was so popular at the time like it was huge massive bestseller had such a massive cultural impact in the UK and then obviously when it was republished it was published in the UK in 1919 um, and republished in the US I think in 1921 which was the same year that the film adaptation with Agnes Ayres and Rudolph Valentino came out um, and it was that and, and in 25 they filmed the the sequel the the sun or the sons of the Sheikh, the son of the Sheikh. But it was a massive, massive cultural phenomenon. Um, Shuming Teo has written a lot about this um, in her book uh, about Sheikh Romance 2. And just that that Orientalism, that kind of Sheikh craze, um, they brought out, you know, cigarettes and um, I think even possibly Sheikh condoms. Um, Shuming has talked about this a lot in terms of the, the branding and the tie-ins here. Uh, but I think that has a lot to do with British Orientalism. A lot of it was the romance of the desert kind of intermingled with the fantasy of, of the man associated with the desert. Yeah. Okay, so this may be like a straight up no, but I mean, were these... <sighs> I'm trying to think like I remember when I was in Saudi Arabia, I don't remember seeing a bookshop. Maybe I just wasn't looking for it. But were these books sold in like these desert locations or no? That is a really good question. Do you mean like the older ones, like the Sheikh or the kind of the Mills and Boone? Yeah, ones? like Mills and Boone as a whole. And like for sure, like were these Sheikh romances on the shelves in like a UAE, like in the UAE or Doha or something like that? That's a really good question. Um I I know for sure there is a huge market for Mills and Boone books in English as well in India, so in South Asia. Um, and from my subsequent research, I know that there have been three Indian heroes in Mills and Boone modern romance between 2000 and 2019. Um, so they started to kind of generate homegrown kind of Indian heroes um, stories written by Indian authors. In terms of the Middle East, North Africa, not that I know of. I know... There are publishing outposts there. Um, but yeah, that's a really good question that it would be interesting to find out. I, I would imagine, no, I would imagine that there's not necessarily a market for these kinds of texts, but there is a kind of a homegrown and kind of transnational market for chiclet. Um, so another book that I've done some research on called Girls of Riyadh by Raja Alsanea, which you might oh, be yeah. familiar with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that was published, I think, in maybe 2007, 2009, something like that. Um, and that is very much modelled on the kind of Sex in the City, chiclet style of book. Uh, was originally written in Arabic um, and published, I think, perhaps in Lebanon originally because um, it was banned in, in Saudi Arabia. But that obviously became a kind of global smash. Um, and interestingly, when we think about category romance and kind of how it's perceived in the world, Girls of Riyadh, if you look at the blurbs on the inside of it and the way it was marketed, it was very much sold as, you know, find out about the real life of these women um, 
living in Riyadh and and what is the life really like and what's the reality and of course it's a hugely fictionalized kind of specific book about these these three very high status very wealthy women and absolutely does not represent the reality for I imagine the majority of women living in Riyadh Um, (laughs) but it's interesting that a book like that was almost sold to the western world as a kind of anthropological study Oh yeah, I Riyadh is the city that I lived in, and I'm like I couldn't even walk in front of the men, like the men that I worked with. I had to walk behind them. So I'm I'm really excited to check out this book and see like how it depicts the lifestyle of women that are there. But again, I just feel like for other for women all over the world that aren't from there, it's like this fantasy almost, and like you want to get a glimpse into this culture. But if it's not coming from voices that are actually there, it's like how how true is it, you know? So like a lot of the writers that were writing these these shake romances were they North American? Like were there North American writers writing for it? Because I'll be honest, for the longest when I thought of like presents, I thought most of them were from overseas. Yeah. So the how many were there? Like the 57 Shake romances that I looked at, published between 2000 and 2009, um, all of the authors were either North American, British, or Australian. Um, oh, wow. I think there were more British authors than other nationalities, but not by much. So there, as far as I could tell, there were no authors of Middle Eastern or North African descent. Um, but there were some authors who had spent time um, in the Middle East, um, in perhaps Kuwait or, or kind of Arabian Peninsula rather than North Africa. Uh, but yeah, in terms of nationality and background, um, they were all either American, Australian or or North American, Australian or British. Did the, uh, um, we got the, the chance to talk to Brenda Jackson recently and the first book in her famous Westmoreland series was Delaney's Desert Chic. And that was that was kind of a, a big moment too, because it was a, it was an interracial between an American black woman and you know the fantasy um, Middle Eastern um, protagonist. Uh, did that book at all come up in your research? No, it didn't. I do know about that book. Um, I think Amira Jamakani wrote about it from a, a research perspective as well. So I have read it. I'm familiar with it. Um, and you're right. That's a really interesting one because of that interracial relationship. Um, I think was it published by Mills and Boone or was it published by? a different publisher. So it was a Harlequin Desire. So I'm not sure how those are how those are um, uh, labeled in uh, outside North America. Yes. So I think that would be a desire. Um, I think it was either slightly outside my time period, um, but certainly it wasn't part of the the modern romance or the Harlequin Presents line. Um, as with any research project, you kind of have to, you have to be <laughs> more specific about yeah. kind of, you can't read everything basically as much as with category romance, obviously you, there's thousands of books you could look at. It's a unique challenge for my research area. Um, but yeah, it was one I'm aware of, but it wasn't kind of part, part of my corpus, but you know, you're right. It is a, an interesting one to analyze. The fact that Amira has done, done work on it kind of indicates what is interesting about that text. Yeah. So there's definitely been academic work on that title specifically. So you have decided, like you decided you were going to do this research. So where did you start? Did you like find the list of titles and start reading? Like, tell us about like the act of your research, like putting it into play, um, how all of that worked out for you. Yeah, this is, as I said, it is challenging when you're working with... with romance like this, with kind of category romance where, you know, they were publishing five, seven titles um, in this particular series at the time every month. Um, so yeah, I I kind of knew I wanted to focus on chick romance, but I hadn't, and I knew Mills and Boone was the biggest publisher of chick romance at the time. Uh, I, I think overall, um, there was something like 300, just, just over 300 Shake romances published by Mills and Boone that I found. I'm sure there's more uh, between 1909 and 2009. So in the first, I guess, hundred years of the of the company. And as I said, uh, a majority or 36 percent of those were published between 2000 and 2009. So 157 were there, more than all of them the rest put together. Um, I the prominence of the modern romance series. So I think most of those shake romances. Well, a lot of those shake romances, a third of them, I guess, were published in the modern romance series. And I was interested as well, because I was doing that comparison with the medieval romance, that modern romance is it's obviously not called that outside the UK. But the fact that they call themselves modern, which in, in, in a category term, maybe just indicates that it's contemporary rather than historical. But I thought it was interesting 
to have the modern juxtaposed against the medieval like what what else was modern about that romance series when they're to my mind they were still presenting the middle east as they literally called it medieval sometimes they would often refer to the sheikh's attitudes as medieval um in that kind of problematic way that medieval indicates barbaric or backwards and yeah it's often used in kind of casual racist parlance about the middle east um even today so I, yeah i was interested to examine what the books were doing that way so yeah so i, I used websites essentially so useful websites for this kind of thing would be like fiction db um i use goodreads to basically kind of make lists of these romances um and i read them i read all 57 sick romances that were published um in that time period and came up with eight uh, that I felt fit particular themes that I wanted to explore that were kind of representative of the timeline, had a range of authors. Um, and yeah, I used those as kind of the case studies for my individual chapters, which explored particular themes. Um, and I paired those with four middle English medieval romances too. Um, and then the, the remainder of the 57 kind of formed a more quantitative kind of backdrop. So I would kind of refer to them. Um, I drew a map at one point of all the different countries that were represented and because some were series and they talked about different countries. So I literally mapped them in this hugely expanded Arabian Peninsula. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of thought about them as a, a cohort of 57 texts. But but yeah, it was really kind of deciding that the modern romance series was, was the, you know, the flagship series. It was something like 28% of all Mills and Boone sales at the time in the UK. Um, and then from there, kind of narrowing down from those 57 books to, to a manageable amount that I could analyze and close read. When you're reading these books, when you, you you're sitting down and you're reading the through the 57 like tell tell us about like when the heroine meets the 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 hero like is he like unlike anybody that she's seen before i mean you mentioned the title so is it like really like aggressiveness on his part like what's the setup for a lot of the books that you were reading i mean in some ways a lot of it is similar to kind of romances at the time with Spanish heroes or, you know, with North American or British heroes. Um, there's the, you know, the Pamela Regis's kind of essential elements of the romance novel. There's, uh, you know, there's the attraction, there's a barrier to the romance that has to be overcome. There's certain kind of structural beats that always occur. So, you know, they might have their first kiss by chapter three. They've probably had sex in a modern romance by chapter seven or chapter eight. Um, you know, you can almost kind of, the, the beats of it are, are, are often quite set in these texts. Um, so the, the attraction is there. In the shake romances, I found that the attraction is often tied in with his presentation of himself as in some way Middle Eastern. Um, so she'll find his robes particularly attractive or his dark skin. Um, she'll He'll sometimes be presented as kind of ferocious. And I think this is the kind of the alphaness. So he'll be compared to a particular kind of imagined desert animal. So like a, a falcon or never a camel, like sexy imagined Middle Eastern animals um or often he'll be literally compared to the desert itself which is a trope that is also in in em holds the shake from 1919 um you know he is his moods are like the desert winds or um you know he smells like the desert um so a lot of it is kind of sensory perception um clothing is really important in the text as well um and kind of one thing i found really interesting as the relationship developed in in quite a few of these is I talked quite a lot about how the hero is hybrid and there's been quite a lot of attention on how the the Mills and Boone shake in this period is he's he's Middle Eastern, but he's also often kind of European. So he often will have a European mother, which kind of, I think, establishes the pattern of a Western woman eloping or running away or being abducted by a Middle Eastern shake. If it happened to his mother, why would it not happen to him? Um, but there's, as the heroine falls in love with him, she will often become more Middle Eastern, and I'm doing that in scare quotes because obviously it's, it's an imaginary geography, but she will adopt certain aspects of the culture as well. So she'll often be dressed in particular clothing associated with his culture, and she'll often experience that as a sense of freedom. Um, there's a line um, from one of the books I looked at, I can't remember which one it is now, I think it was a Lynn Graham book, 
but essentially she kind of she she's enjoying the feel of the desert wind uh kind of through through her legs or something so she's she's imagining having taken off the pantyhose the tights that she was wearing and now she feels freedom in this new clothing that's not representative of like north american business um sometimes they are given names that are specific they're renamed with names specific to his culture they'll start learning the language they'll eat the food they'll start getting closer to his family and there'll often be a breaking point where uh, in one of the texts where she says, you know, no, I don't want this. This, That's not my name. My name is my original name. Uh, but usually they settle in the end in his country, not that they'll, they'll travel, but, you know, they make their home in the the, the kind of Middle Eastern nation. Um, so this was one of the, the kind of conclusions of my research is while the, the difference is initially sexy and attractive, and I think sexy and attractive for the reader as well, ultimately in order for the happy ever after to be imagined sameness has to come to the forefront you know they both have to be hybrid that he has to kind of adopt women's rights he has to fall in love with her he has to be appropriately westernized enough and she also has to adopt certain aspects of his culture too in order that they kind of meet in hybridity i called it sameness in hybridity um in the end um so yeah there's the, the texts have quite a lot to say, I think, about identity and representation and how identity changes kind of through the love story. I think they're using the patterns and the beats of the love story to to say something about identity. One of the things I think that has changed over the past 10 years is kind of where the heroine comes from. So I think for almost all of the texts I was looking at, the heroine is uh, a white Western woman. She's either Australian or British or North American. Um, the very few exceptions is she in any way kind of ethnically Middle Eastern or kind of uh, of kind of mixed cultural heritage. Um, there are now more that imagine um, Middle Eastern heroines and maybe like non-Sheikh heroes, but there are now Sheikh romances which kind of mix up that formula of male Sheikh Western woman. Um, but at that time, kind of 2000, 2009, it was still very stuck in that formula. So what were, can you tell us the eight titles that you, like after you've read through the 57, you said you, you, you got, you focused on eight or that were, there were eight that really stood out to you the most and that you focused on. What were they? Yes, I can tell you. I'm just going to have to open a document okay. to remind myself. <laughs> Give me a second and I will tell you. <laughs> I mean, and can I ask, like, when you're read, I mean, when you're reading for a project like this, did you enjoy all 57 of them? Were there any that were like a complete eye roll and hard to get through? You don't know. It was, I mean, I found the project so interesting. So if there was, if there was a moment that for me, I found kind of cringy or cheesy, that would also be a moment that would be amazing to analyze. Um, so there's one uh, scene in a text which I can find the name of shortly where uh, he, so one of my chapters was about abduction and that was something that was quite unusual in these Shake romances is a, a ridiculous proportion of the 57, like something like 40 of the 57 had the hero abduct or kidnap the heroine in oh some way. Gosh. So that's obviously a legacy from, I mean, that happens in E.M. Hull's The Shake. So, you know, it's, it's a trope of the Shake romance, I think quite unusually um you know it doesn't necessarily happen where there's an italian hero or a greek hero um and there's a scene where he's whisked her away to this oasis and they're in a, a tent in the desert um and he ties her up they're basically having sex and he ties her up to the pole behind her ties her hands up behind her head using his clothing like using he unwraps his headscarf and kind of ties her hands up um which for me wasn't necessarily a moment that I would find enjoyable in a romance novel that's that's not an, an action that necessarily does it for me um but you know reading that from a, a theoretical critical perspective you know it's it's associating kind of abduction and, and all throughout the scene essentially she's saying no and he's saying but I know you want it really your body's saying yes You're, she says no consistently she never says yes but they still have sex and it's still presented as you know she wanted it um which is a whole other problematic thing um but yeah by tying her up using his headscarf which has been so associated with him and his culture throughout it's kind of tying her up literally with this representation of his culture which so from a critical perspective that was really interesting to read that moment but from a reader perspective I didn't necessarily enjoy it if that makes sense yeah yeah um okay I am just gonna find the the books yeah I had a list of them but yeah I've got to go back to my uh my thesis and find it somewhere <laughs> so you mentioned like Lynn Graham was one an author of like 
one of like she wrote some middle some middle eastern romances were are just off the top of your head are there any other authors that i think you mentioned violet winspear it's a pretty big name that we we've heard about are there any others yeah so the um so this this phd research essentially became a book in the end um and the appendix of that book is all of the 300 odd that i found from kind of 1909 with kind of details of the series it was in and the date and kind of where it's set um i found the the nine novels that i looked at for the thesis was actually nine not eight that i focused on um, it was The Arabian Mistress by Lynn Graham from 2001, which was one of the very first ones. I think it was like number three or something that, that Mills and Boone published in the modern romance series. Uh, the Sultan's Bought Bride by Jane Porter from 2004. Uh, Possessed by the Sheikh by Penny Jordan from 2005. Uh, the Sultan's Virgin Bride, 2006 by Sarah Morgan. The Sheikh's Disobedient Bride by Jane Porter, 2006. Uh, the Sheikh's Ransom Bride by Annie West, 2007. At the Sheikh's Bidding by Chantelle Shaw, 2008. The Sheikh's Convenient Virgin by Trish Morrie from 2008. And The Desert King's Bejeweled Bride by Sabrina Phillips from 2009. Oh my gosh, a lot of Sheikhs and Brides. <laughs> the mm-hmm. title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying about the titles. It was, it was, yeah, very formulaic at that time. So what were the themes that you included in your book after reading all of these titles? Because you mentioned you know, you narrowed down on these nine and then you kind of built the themes around them. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So kind of reading all 57, I was kind of reading while also looking for what are the common threads, what kinds of things happen overall. Um, and obviously the the project was also comparing these with a selection of medieval romances that also kind of had these themes together. Um, and we can talk about the medieval romances, which are wild as well, have all kinds of things happening in them. Um, But yeah, essentially it was, I was interested in kind of how gender was performed. So um, one of the chapters talked about kind of the geographic spaces of these texts and and how they move from reality to fantasy, as we talked about already, Um, the way that the sheikh is so heavily described in association with that so you know he's described as like the desert um, and how his masculinity is is kind of tied to the country that he's imagined to come from from that culture uh, I thought about kind of the how the heroine is described um, and how she kind of assimilates I guess would would be a way of putting it or kind of adopts some of that hybridity um, and then yeah the final chapter was about uh, abduction and kind of how kidnap is worked in. Um, and in a sense, kidnapping these texts was was kind of a, a vehicle to make the romance happen, if you like. Um, it was condemned by characters within it, but in the end, it served to bring the hero and heroine closer together. It served to help them fall in love. So the text wasn't necessarily... Yeah, when you you think about that in the context of the time of, you know, real-life abductions, and, and those are referred to in the text, you know, these women mention being afraid of abduction, it being a, a fear that they worry will happen to them, then that actually does happen in the text, but actually it's a kind of romantic abduction. So I, I kind of theorised this thing called romance abduction, which was different to kind of political abduction. It's it's framed differently in these books as more part of the, the romance plot rather than... Uh, you know, a ransom for political reasons or something. Tell us about comparing these with the medievals and like talk about the medieval romances. Yeah, there's, um. so I looked at a few kind of medieval English romances. I'll, I'll give you one example, um, which, yeah, I think is kind of interesting. So there's a medieval romance called The King of Tars, um, which there's kind of, I think, three surviving manuscripts and um, kind of originally dating from kind of 13th, 14th century. Um, and there's kind of different versions of it all around Europe, but I was looking at the Middle English version. Uh, the basic premise is uh, there's this sultan who wants to marry this Christian princess because he's heard she's so beautiful. She initially doesn't want to, but she eventually agrees. Um, he insists she must convert to Islam before they get married and have a baby. She pretends to convert, but doesn't really. Uh, and so when their child is born, the child is born as a lump of flesh with no bones, no eyes, no identifying features, nothing. Uh, so you can already see, I mean, we teach this text as part of the history of, of racism and think about what's problematic about it. Um, so it's a text that obviously needs a lot of careful theorizing to kind of unpick exactly what's going on in it. Um, and then, you know, he says, you lied to me, you didn't convert. And she says, well, why don't you try and and christen the child according to your faith? He does. Nothing happens. 
then she says, well, you've locked up this Christian priest in your prison. Can we get him to have a go? Uh, he does. And the child springs into a fully formed boy child, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, at which point the Sultan says, oh, okay, Christianity is great. I should also become a Christian. Um, also because she says, unless if you don't become a Christian, basically not even half of the child will be yours. So she's kind of saying in order to secure your lineage as a king, you have to convert as well. So he does, at which point his skin changes from black to white. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um and then, you know, he can forcibly converts his entire kingdom and they team up with the princess's father and it's, you know, a kind of neo-crusading thing. Um so it's it's Christian propaganda. It's very problematic, but also was quite popular as a text. So, you know, it's it's important to kind of unpick what's going on and and you know, think carefully about what does this tell us about the the kind of the the kinds of racisms that were happening at the time. Um, and so thinking about that with the Mills and Boone romances, obviously what I've just described sounds very different to the Mills and Boone kind of shake romances we know. Um, but yeah, it was the that miscegenation aspect. So that worry about heritage and, uh, you know, how do you know that the person you're having sex with and possibly having a child with is who they really say they are? Um, and there's this scene in, in one of the books I was looking at uh, where he's they've had sex and uh he's kind of imagining that she'll be pregnant from this and he's there in a bath or something together and he's soaping her belly with like big circles of his thumbs um and he's kind of saying you know that the child might be ours and he's calling her by by this name that he's renamed her but she kind of decides at this moment she doesn't want this and she says you know no that's not my name I'm not part of this culture I want to go back I don't like it here anymore um at which point he freaks out and tries to, to basically say you have to stay here you might have my child and so that anxiety about having a, a, a child result from a sexual relationship where that relationship isn't kind of ethnically culturally aligned it was interesting to me that that anxiety seemed to also be coming up in these shake romances too, in a kind of coded in a similar way um, to the medieval romances. So this was the, you know, sameness is necessary, particularly when a, a potential child is involved. Um, so yeah, that was one example of, of kind of threads from those medieval romances that I could see echoed in these, these contemporary texts as well. I feel like, you know, reading these books is important in a way because it, it shows you if it's almost like a time capsule, you know, do you, do, how do you view it? And for anybody that's like, okay, I want to go back and read some of these old modern presents, but I'm nervous about what I'll see. Like, what advice would you give to them? Like, why do you think it's important or not so much important, whichever, whichever side of the fence you, you lean on to read these books? I think the time capsuleness is definitely part of it. And actually having this conversation today has really made me reflect again on, you know, even 10 years ago, how different the modern romance line looks now. Um, and the, yeah, the changes that have happened since then as well, I think indicate perhaps the, yeah, I think there's, there's two ways of approaching that are important. There's the kind of the quantitative aspect of it. So if you look over the, the first two decades of the 21st century, there was something like 1900 books published in the modern romance series in the UK. And that's probably broadly comparable with the presents um, and with the, the Australian, um, the Australian imprint as well, uh, is the, yeah, the, the, the way that we can track changes over time with it. I think we have enough data now that the numbers and the quantitative data can tell us something. Um, so, and, and, as an example of that, when I kind of moved on from the Sheikh romance, I continued with my interest in the modern romance line, but I tracked the nationalities of the heroes over those 1900 books, essentially. Um, so for instance, um, I've got a, a big database of that now. Um, so the, the Russian hero, for instance, Russian heroes appeared in 2008 um, and there was, you know, a little readers kind of were, were happy to have a, a different kind of hero. But yeah, the sexy Russian kind of peaked. And then even in 2019, it kind of massively declined in a sense. Um, but, you know, why did the Russian hero emerge in 2008? What was going on there that, that made the Russian hero a kind of attractive alpha hero for this romance series? Um, shakes have kind of been 
pretty consistently popular. Um, but Italians, uh, for instance, have gone down a bit. Italians are consistently the most popular in terms of non-Western heroes. Um, but yeah, there's been kind of fictional Mediterranean guys. So those kind of fictional Mediterranean or like European princes, uh, those come out. There's a kind of growth and then a decline of Latin American heroes. Uh, the Greek heroes kind of dropped off a bit. Uh, I don't know if that was around kind of economic events in Greece that kind of, I don't know, maybe the the editors, the authors, the series producers, whatever, kind of felt that there weren't as many Greek shipping magnates. Um, so I've got all that data and kind of looking at, at kind of tracking even just where the heroes come from and, and what kinds of masculinities are seen as desirable at different times in that 20 year period, I think can tell us some really interesting things about readers, about, you know, perceptions of what readers want at the time. So that's the the quantitative side. Um, I guess the, the qualitative side, that would be more looking at the individual novels. And my research into category of romance has always done both because I think it's important to, to get both sides of it. Um, I don't know if it's looking at particular texts, so perhaps with Shake Romance, some of those texts that, that I talked about there, um, they kind of span that 10-year period I looked at. Um, but yeah, one of the challenges with this, which I'm, I'm sure you've come across yourselves, is where do you find these older category romance texts? Um, they don't tend to get preserved or saved in the yeah. same way that standalone single title books do. So actually, is it possible to go back and find a specific book if you want to? Or is it the case that we just have to be more haphazard in our casual reading? Um, I did a lot of research myself at the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh, um, partly because it was it was closer and I used to live in Edinburgh uh, at a certain point as well. Um, but yeah, the they're a repository library, so they keep a, a store. So basically every Mills and Boone modern romance that's been published is kept in there. But then when you go back to the 90s and the 80s and 70s, they don't have a record in the same way. So we have these huge, potentially huge corpuses of material. But as a researcher, you can't always access everything. It, it's not there in the same way that, say, the works of Shakespeare are just available and, and everywhere. Um, so, yeah, it can be... I think it can be challenging to, to find specific titles. But yeah, repository libraries, the British Library, the National Library of Scotland, um, yeah, they can be be useful. I was when I was doing my research into the masculinity stuff, it involved kind of doing a lot of research online and seeing if I could find out the nationality, you know, often from the title, like the Russian the Russian secretary bride or something like that. You're like, well, I'm pretty sure he's a Russian. Um, but some, it wasn't clear. So I had a trolley at one point of like 100 Mills and Boone novels. And I am still in the National Library when I go there, known as that Mills and Boone lady. Uh, so it was, that was really fun, but they were really great. They let me kind of extended my borrower limit and let me look at loads and loads of things. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of my research has kind of been counting and that kind of quantitative stuff alongside the more kind of detailed case study stuff. Well, so much of like Aaron and I, we, we've had this conversation and we've, we've asked, you know, modern authors when we've had the opportunity to talk to them, like, you know, presents is so iconic. It's, it's, I think it's safe to say it's the line people, if you ask them, do you read Mills and Boone? They immediately think of modern, which I find interesting yeah. when the romance true love line is actually older, but presents is so iconic. And so much of those those stories are really focused on the hero. Like if you go to like the Write for Harlequin website and you pull up, you know, what they need you to focus on if you're trying to write a modern or a presents, it is like the alpha male, right? Like it, it just seems like you have to start there and kind of build the story around him. Um, yeah. What is like the reading in your research? Like, what have you taken away about the modern hero? Like, what is your your reading kind of led you, you know, your conclusion or your thoughts about it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so yeah, that the kind of thinking about the hero from the perspective of where he comes from. So I've I've tended to focus on those heroes that are imagined to come from more exotic locations, so not the Western heroes. Although actually there's been a, a persistent decline in the proportion of Western heroes among the heroes of, of um, uh, kind of modern romances. It's very much the home of the exotic alpha male now, I would say. Um, and I, I think that was something I, I found out is that the way the heroes are written, their perceived exoticness is very much tied up with their 
kind of masculinity. So the kind of alpha that they are is always tied in some way to where they're imagined to come from. Okay. Uh, so I did some research into the Russian heroes, for instance, um, and a lot of that is, you know, the kind of Putin-esque masculinity, that kind of capitalist oligarch kind of uh, kind of wealth, which is something in Britain that we would associate with with kind of Russian identity. That's very much the the stereotype of of kind of Russian masculinity is the kind of hyper masculine oligarch, um, and that seems to be the kind of masculinity. Um, that, that that seems to be something that that is borrowed to construct the the Russian modern romance heroes. Um, the same with the Latin American heroes that I looked at, um, a kind of machismo as a, a a kind of masculinity associated with kind of Latin American culture, Latin American masculinity. Uh, they're described again like the sheikhs as uh, looking like particular animals or kind of particular aspects of the landscape. Um, but or there was you'll get something... the Latin lover stereotype. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, stop writing this, people. <laughs> Oh, the Latin lover is so ubiquitous now. I mean, I want I wonder to some extent that Latin lover is is, you know, what was previously distinctly Latin is now just alpha in yeah. a way. <laughs> but yeah, there's there is something specific about each of the type of heroes. Like Russian heroes do not look like Latin heroes, do not look like Spanish heroes. There is always something distinctive about them. But what I thought was really interesting kind of isolating them is that there were aspects of masculinity that was seen as undesirable um, and those were often specifically identified as cultural undesirables so machismo for instance um, or that kind of Putin-esque uh, kind of hyper-masculinity of the Russian heroes but for all of them and this goes the same with the sheikh as well with that kind of really patriarchal culture that the sheikh is perceived to come from in some of those books that is dissociated from the hero so the hero is special because the problematic aspects of his masculinity are located in the culture or in a previous generation so it would be his father or his grandfather yes rather than yes. in the specific hero itself so the books borrow aspects of kind of cultural masculinity but they do so in a way that uh, sidesteps that the problematic aspects of it. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking of you know a recent presents that came out that was wonderful, but you t- you do tend to see oh my dad was awful to me and my mom died or she ran off and I've never seen her again and I need to change my image because I don't want to appear I don't want to have the same image as my father. You know, you see that a yeah. lot now yeah is there anything else like that you that you you know we didn't have you haven't covered yet that you want to share with us before we you know get off of here no it's been great to kind of talk about this research as well it's kind of yeah reminded me that you know yeah you're right the modern romance is the the kind of flagship series and it's yeah it's just reminded me of the the richness of the the data and the the things that it kind of tells me. And I just, I think there's so much more research that could be done on this series um, specifically. And and yeah, there's probably something like two and a half thousand published now. So it'd be a really big task for a researcher yeah. or a reader. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be done. Within the line, like we have authors like Jade Sola James, who's, whose heroes are, you know, in Africa. They're from African countries. And we have Maya Blake doing the same as well. So it's interesting to see. I, I just love to see like, the different authors, the different voices that are like giving different heroes an opportunity to be a presence hero. I do feel like we have, there's plenty of room for a lot more than that. So, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see where the line goes from here for sure. Cause I mean, we're seeing bits and pieces of it becoming a little bit more diverse, um, but there's still just so much more. So yeah. And it's interesting yeah. because you like we we talked about the Italians and I'm like, yeah, it, it's been a while, but I know we have an Italian, you know, presents hero that's coming up. So that'll be fun to see. But I'm like, I, I haven't seen one of those in a while, it feels like. So kind of paying attention to where our heroes are from, I think could be a really interesting project for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just looking back at my my spreadsheet of this, this was up to December 2019. Um, and there's no heroes that I could find from anywhere in 
on the, from the African continent. Um, one hero from Singapore from 2019. Um, there was a couple of Turkish heroes, one in 2003 and one in 2015. Um, that's not included within Sheikh. There was a kind of non-Sheikh Turkish hero. Um, but yeah, like three Indian heroes across that time. So it's it's really good to to hear from your perspective that it is becoming more diverse. I think there's there's definitely scope for that. Looking at this, it's still quite a, a narrow um, kind of range of imagined nationalities for these heroes. Are there ever any Australia in your research? Were there any Australian heroes? Because there were Australian authors, but did they ever set them there? Yes, I have grouped those into what I've called Western, uh, okay. which was basically British, North American, Australian. So I, I was including that. Um, yes, but actually, interestingly, over that 20 year span, um, the proportion of Western heroes massively goes down in comparison with just all of the, I'm saying foreign in quote marks, but all of the non-Western heroes, if you like. Um, so overall, I think across the whole series, it's something like 66% non-Western heroes and 32, 33% kind of Western heroes there. So do you think, in your opinion, like, do you think that Exotic Hero is part of the reason why it's such an iconic series? Like, why it's the series people immediately think of? Because is that escape, you know? Yeah, I do. Um, I think partly just the evidence suggest that for itself you know you said this is the iconic series it's it's about fantasy it's about wealth a lot of this and you said it's you know it is so much about the hero it's the home of the alpha male the titles often indicate the hero and and i think possibly more than some other kind of lines or subgenres of romance modern romance is about the hero and if the so-called exotic hero is so prominent in that series, then it has to be such a huge part of of the appeal of that that series of that fantasy. Because if an author, if I'm, you know, a North American author and I'm writing for presents, if I write like a North American hero, he's gonna feel like regular Joe Schmo I could meet walking down the street. Right. So is that where that okay, I want to escape. So let me, you know, write a Japanese billionaire that I met on a whim in Japan. Like you think that's where that's stemming from? Like, if you're a British author, you don't want to write a British hero because you could meet him at the the supermarket or something. Yeah, I think that's where the wealth comes in. Um, so I did in in an earlier study. This was only up to 2015, but I looked again at the the titles and the words that most commonly came up in relation to to kind of heroes from different types of novels. And, you know, with South American, it was like Brazilian, Argentinian, like dark or devil. Uh, with the sheikh, it was sheikh or king, prince, whatever. But with the Western ones, it was billionaire, millionaire, boss, tycoon. So yeah, the the exoticness perhaps of the Western heroes comes from wealth. Well, whereas, yeah. you know, like a Frenchman, for instance, yeah, he's rich, but also he's French. The Frenchman is going to be why you pick up the book. Exactly. Wow. Oh my gosh, Dr. Burge, you're so smart. <laughs> this is been- Okay, so what are you, are you researching anything now? Like, where do you go from here? Yeah, I am. So I've I've moved away from category romance slightly, um, working on a range of different things. But yeah, what's coming up next for me is thinking a little more about British popular romance. Um, so a lot of the history of romance as we tell it within academic work uh, is really kind of focused on North America, partly because it's you know the biggest kind of romance reading community. Mills and Boone obviously moved over to Canada. Um, but it's it also emits some, I think, really specific and peculiarly British traditions um, over the 20th century, 21st century. Um, so I'm going to be working with Dr. Dr. Jodie McAllister from um, Deakin University in Australia. We're doing a bit of work and putting a grant together um, to just bring a little bit more attention to kind of specifically British popular romance fiction and authors. Um, so for instance, Barbara Cartland, who you may or may not have heard of as an author. Oh, yes. Dame Barbara. Um, Dame Barbara. So she, you know, she's one of the most successful, prolific writers ever. I think there's a Wikipedia page that kind of in English has Shakespeare and then has Barbara Cartland immediately after. Wow. Uh, and yet, you know, there's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of awareness of her work. So, you know, showcasing authors like her, 
Um, and yeah, over the next few months, Jodie and I are working together on a little project on the Bonk Buster. Okay, what is that? Um, so yeah, it's it's that's partly what we're going to be finding out. Um, yeah, it's it's been defined kind of as a big, thick book with lots of bonking in it, lots of sex in it. Um, so Shirley Conran's Lace was an early example. Um, Jilly Cooper's Rider series. Um, kind of, yeah, thinking about uh, Daniel Steele to some extent, kind of the non-thriller stuff, uh, Jackie Collins. Um, so it was a, a genre that was hugely popular in the UK in the kind of late 70s, 80s, into the 90s. I, I think it filled a gap kind of between the historical kind of bodice ripper and the emergence of chiclet in kind of the 90s. Uh, and yeah, but there's not been a lot of work on it. And we're interested in kind of what are the politics of the Bonkbuster? Why was it popular? Why do people read it? What do they get from it? Um, and kind of filling in that gap in in kind of scholarship on on a very British popular romance tradition. Um, so yeah, I've got a lot of big, thick books about bonking in my immediate future. <laughs> well, can you please come back and talk all about bonking and your research? I mean, if Dr. Jody can join us as well, y'all can do it together. Like, I we just need to know what you all come up with, please. I'd be delighted to do. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come back and talk about that in, in due course. <laughs> well, where can everybody keep up with you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Dr. Amy Burge, at Dr. Amy Burge. Um, or if you just kind of look for me at the University of Birmingham, which is where I work, uh, my university page is kind of updated with with what's going on with me. So my publications and my kind of ongoing research, you can access all of that there. Um, or just email me. I'd always love to hear from people interested in, in romance. Uh, we have quite a lot of uh, research students working on romance at Birmingham at the moment on a range of topics. So I'm, I'm really keen to kind of foster everybody's interest and, and research. Uh, and that's, yeah, you can find that on my university page as well, my email address. So are you getting to like teach romance? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, sort of range of stuff I've got. Uh, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be supervising a range of really cool PhD projects, um, including one, actually, um, I have a student starting in January, and we're doing a funded project with Mills and Boone as a partner. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Well, please tell your student we have a podcast. If they want to talk their research, we're, we're we're here for them. Okay, we're rooting. I just love that there are so many people that are like people are researching romance now. It's like finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's been it's been a rocky road for popular romance studies uh, for a little while, but yeah, there's a really really good strong community of researchers, um, and yeah, within the UK, kind of, I'm doing what I can to to support that. So yeah, super exciting research research yeah. coming through. Yeah. 